So 1 Kings suddenly turned into a bit of a downer, huh? We were going along just fine, hearing about all the great things that Solomon was accomplishing and all of the from victory on to victory that was going on after David passed the kingdom, the kingship on to his son Solomon. We were hearing of Solomon's work for God and his commitment to it. The peace that was in the nation and all of the mighty building projects and works that he had done. And then we read last week of the way that Solomon fell into sin with uh, his love of many women and then how that led step by step into his worshipping of idols, of false gods, instead of the one true God. Well, this morning we begin to read of the consequences for that. And we'll, we'll step into it gently with this passage. <laughs> Uh, but I want us to I want us to see that this is just this just this little bit. This is just where it starts. God's discipline begins, and it is it is serious. What we have here is a description of. An adversary, two adversaries, and that they were raised up by God against Solomon. Now, oftentimes when we think of men who are raised up by God, we think of the prophets. They were holy men that God had raised up to do the work of. Opposing kings, leading kings, disciplining kings. Nathan the prophet was one of these men that God used to discipline Solomon's father David, right? And Nathan was good. Think of the prophets and not that they don't have sins, but they're, they're the good guys, Right? But we also read a number of times in Scripture of God raising up people to do the work of disciplining His people, but who are not good guys. Eventually, we'll we'll see some of the most extreme examples where you have foreign kings taking away God's people into exile. Some of the worst, saddest stories that we read in the Bible. And we realize that these were things that, not just that God had in his sovereignty planned to have happen, but that he had specifically raised up these men, these kings, these commanders as discipline on his people. 
And so we see here just a small, small foretaste of the ultimately very large discipline that would be coming on God's people, which we'll be reading about in the coming weeks. Next week, it will be even more uh, direct and intense discipline on Solomon as we read about the raising up of Jeroboam and, and Rehoboam that are sort of the, the possible kings and just the sad result of, on, on both sides with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. But this week, we just have Hadad the Edomite. Now, if you hadn't just heard it, or maybe you ha if you hadn't read it in uh, the Bible reading plan, who would be able to tell me who Hadad the Edomite was? Anybody? I don't think so. It's not exactly uh, one of those common Sunday school stories, or you know, you don't you don't generally find a lesson on Hadad the Edomite in your uh, in your women's Bible study book, right? Or uh, there's, you know, there's just not a lot that's easy to take away from the Hadad the Edomite story. And then you've got Rezon, the son of Eliada. I mean, if you'd said Hadad the Edomite, I would have been like, yeah, that sounds familiar. It maybe rings a bell, but Rezon? No, I, I did not even, that doesn't even ring a bell for me until I read this. Okay. Short little passage, just 14 through 25 here. And what these two men represent is the beginning of the return of enemies from without. Enemies of God's people. Enemies of the kingdom of God. And, and this is the kingdom of God. These are his chosen people. And yet he raises up these, these enemies. Why does, why does God raise up enemies? Well, God uses enemies to discipline us. This is very important. There are a lot of reasons that we don't want to think of God using enemies to discipline us. But mostly it just comes down to I don't want to repent. That's it. I don't want to repent, and therefore I'm not actually willing to think about enemies being God's discipline. And so we refuse. Now there's a lot of ways of refusing. We don't get any indication here of what Solomon was thinking, 
right? It doesn't talk to us about Solomon's thought process. But here he is suffering. And it's clear that Solomon is suffering. The Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. Now, the Edom, the Edomites, not God's people, right? A foreigner, an enemy from the outside, a problem coming from without. Then the same with Rezon. Another adversary. God also raised up another adversary to him. Verse 23. Not going to let us forget. God is the one who is doing this. And who was this guy? Well, son of Eliada, sure. Um, he had been serving under Hadadezer, king of Zoba. Is Hadadezer, king of Zoba, one of God's Kings? No. And if you don't remember, we get a little reminder, right? Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he gathered men to himself. This is talking about uh, Rezon. Okay, but Rezon gathered men to himself and became leader of a marauding band after David. That's God's king. That's the king of the chosen people of Israel, right? After David slew them of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. So he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil that Hadad did, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Aram. So these guys are people who came out of the enemies of God's people. Just a little remnant that's left, right? The men of Zobah were slain. Hadadezer was killed. David defeated Zobah, defeated Hadadezer, killed all those men, right? And yet there was a servant that survived, that fled, that gathered men around himself and created a marauding band. Now, kids, do you know what a marauding band is? Any ideas? Surely more than one person has an idea. All right, Judah, go. I mean, Liam, go ahead. Uh, yeah, a band, a group of men that goes around and steals stuff from people. They would do more than steal stuff, of course, but stealing would be definitely a big part of it. A marauding band is a large-ish group of adult bullies. They're they're bullies. They just go around and take and do what they want. And anybody who tries to stop them, they say, you're not the boss of me. Push them out of the way. Keep going. Doing what they want. Taking what they want. Hurting whoever they want. And so a marauding band would kill people. 
A marauding band would burn people's houses down with them inside. A marauding band would destroy a, a little village and take all the animals away. A marauding band is bad news. When you find out that there's a marauding band traveling around, you, your village, hurting people on the, on the highway or killing them, taking their money, you begin to think about moving when that's going on in your neighborhood, right? If you start realizing that there are gangs moving into your neighborhood, you sell your house, you move, you find a new neighborhood because you don't want marauding bands around. You want to go to a place where there aren't marauding bands. Well, here we've got this guy, Rizan, gathers men to himself, becomes leader of a, of a marauding band. And he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil that Hadad did. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Aram. Now, what is the evil that Hadad did? Did, any, did anybody catch the evil that Hadad did? No, you didn't, because it doesn't say. It's just, he's an enemy. He's an enemy of the king. He did evil. He caused problems. We don't even know what the problems were. We just know that he caused problems. Now, how many of you have... Uh, in-law problems. Okay, you got in-law problems. You've never had in-law problems like Solomon had in-law problems. And I don't just mean because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yes, you're, he is going to have more in-law problems than anybody else. Granted. But did you see? Did you see who was helping Hadad, the Edomite? Pharaoh. Remember who Solomon married? Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, right? Man. He's an enemy. And he goes down to Egypt, and Solomon's father-in-law gives him everything that he wants, everything that he needs, props up this guy who's an enemy of Solomon. And then, he marries into the family. Great. Now this outlaw is an in-law. He married into the family. And then, Hadad gets sent by Pharaoh. 
sent back. Now, Pharaoh doesn't want to send him, but Hadad says, nevertheless, you must surely let me go. He wants to go where? He wants to go back to his own country. Where was his own country? The place where David had defeated them. Where the enemies had been kicked out. The enemies were beginning to return. And he becomes a problem to Solomon. If you were to read the first part of this book and you were to read the work that Solomon had done, the building projects that he accomplished, the trade cities that he built, the fortifications that he built, the chariots, horses, soldiers, forced laborers. Would you really think that Hadad, the Edomite, could be a problem to Solomon? You just wouldn't. If I said, you know, now there's going to begin to be problems for this great king who's been living at peace, all the enemies are defeated, He's, his wisdom is... Huge, the borders are spread out, They're bring, everybody's bringing him tribute, all the kings around serve him. There's going to begin to be problems. <clears throat> You'd probably think, okay, there must be some other superpower in the world somewhere, right? That's going to come in with this gigantic army and some shock and awe campaign is just going to roll through. Or set up sieges. or But no. It's Hadad the Edomite. And what's that other guy's name? Rezon. Who's that? A marauding band? That's the problem? What I want you to see is that this is God using enemies to discipline Solomon and to discipline his people. It's painful. It's painful for Solomon to not be, to not be able to take care of the marauding bands that need to be taken care of. But what we don't see here is we don't see repentance from Solomon. We don't see any indication that he learns from this. Now I think I mentioned last week that sometimes there are obvious connections. Sometimes the connections are completely opaque to us between sin and consequences. Right? This is one of those where the, the consequences of Solomon's sin don't connect in any obvious way to his sin. The consequences are a couple of men beginning to cause problems in the nation. Right? And you can, you can think about it, you can maybe see some connections, but, but there's, there's no obvious reason why he begins to worship idols 
marauding bands begin to cause problems. It's just not an obvious, here's what happens when you do that. Because, let's be real, has, has idolatry stopped being a problem? No, people still worship idols, right? Marauding bands have at various times been problems in nations, and at other times not. So you've got the, the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome that Rome forced on the world. They took care of the pirates. They took care of the marauding bands. They enforced their peace on the known world, right? The civilized world at that time, insofar as from, from the perspective of the Romans, right? And... You didn't have to worry about marauding bands anymore. You could travel. It was safe. And so, we can't assume at that point, oh, there were no marauding bands, so they must have stopped worshipping idols. Because marauding bands are always when there are idol, idol worship going on, right? No. It's, it's not, there's not this, like, one leads to the other, this obvious connection. The Romans were all worshipping idols. They had great big temples. Worshipped their idols. No marauding bands. Idol worship doesn't lead automatically to marauding bands. Right? Nevertheless, here we have God's word saying, Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon directly in the context of, and immediately following, him beginning to worship idols. Scripture is not shying away from what God is doing and why. So now this begins to... uh, This begins to make people uncomfortable because... We think about the we think about the bad things that have happened in our lives, or the bad things that have happened to people we love. No obvious direct correlation, cause and effect, consequence of sin. Okay, sometimes you can see them and be like, "Hey." You can't do that anymore. This is what happens when you do that. You will destroy your life, right? If you continue doing drugs, you will end up like this. It, it will destroy your life. If you continue, it will destroy your life. This, like, we, we've, got, we've got those. We can point at those. We can say, yeah, there's places where it's obvious. There's places where the connection is clear. But then there's places where it's, it's, not so, it's not so obvious, it's not so clear. There's no direct connection. And it's like, what? What am I supposed to do? Just assume that anytime anything bad happens to somebody that God is punishing them, that, it, that it's God's discipline on them? And, and then you know you can't do that, right? Because, hello, the book of Job, 40 chapters of 
teaching us not to do that. Pretty important that we remember we're not supposed to do that. But this isn't unique. It's not unique that, that Solomon faces discipline that isn't directly and obviously connected and that the Bible just connects them. The fact is that God sent hey dad. God sent Rezon. God sent them as a response to Solomon's sin. From reading this, you know what they sound like to me? They sound like thorns in the side of Solomon. Right? A thorn in the, in the side, a thorn in the flesh. God sends thorns in our flesh for a variety of reasons. Sometimes to teach us to trust him. You remember the Apostle Paul prayed to God to take away his thorn. And God said, no. And, Saul, and, and, and the Apostle Paul prayed again, please take away this thorn in my flesh. And God said, no. And the Apostle Paul prayed again, Heavenly Father, please, I can't bear it. Take away this thorn in my flesh. And God said, no. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. What does it mean for God's grace to be sufficient to deal with, to put up with, to live through having a thorn in the flesh? Well, the Apostle Paul had to put his trust and get his strength from God, right? He never gives us any indication that it's because of sin. Maybe it was, but we don't, we don't have any indication of that from the Apostle Paul. But isn't it remarkable how similar the response actually is. What does the Apostle Paul do when there's this thorn in his flesh? He goes to God. What should you do if God sends discipline that's, that's painful, that's a, that's a thorn to you, like Hadad hey is to Solomon? Go to God. 
That's what you should do. You see how similar they are. As a matter of fact, they're practically the same. The response is, you go to God. You turn to God, you look to God to bring you through that. And if you've been worshiping idols, and you go to God, that's repentance. It requires repentance. You can't go to God seeking help with enemies without repenting. It's entirely possible for you to... uh, It's entirely possible for you to demand that God save you without repenting, right? It's entirely possible to say... This has nothing to do with my sin. I have no sin to be confessing, repenting of, turning away from. I don't need to worry about being overcome, overwhelmed by enemies. God is on my side. But you see, that's not going to God, is it? You you understand what I'm saying? It's possible for us to think that we have God and to try to use him as a a magical talisman that we can always appeal to, the way that the Israelites did with the ark, right? Oh, well, we've got God in our presence, so we're going to win. But was that repentant? Was Was that turning to God? No, they weren't turning to God. They were seeking to use God, but they weren't turning to God. Paul turned to God, and it wasn't even about sin, right? If we're being disciplined for sin and and it's painful, we have to turn to God. We have to believe God. What did Job need to do? Job was facing some painful stuff. He needed to turn to God, didn't he? The temptation, of course, was to curse God and die. That would be utter foolishness. Better to turn to God and live. But what I don't want us to do, I, I, I mean, you're, you're facing something difficult. You're facing enemies from without. You have to turn to God. But what I don't want you to do is simply assume, well, I'm one of God's people. God's on my side. This has nothing to do with sin. You can't draw a direct connection between any sin that I've done and that consequence. You have to look inside yourself. You must examine yourself for sin. And if you find any, repentance has to be part of turning to God. Do we actually believe God when he says that he disciplines his children?
How many of you kids like marshmallows? Most of you do. I like marshmallows too. That's because they're sugar. Sugar's good. Now, how many of you kids have ever heard of the marshmallow test? You've heard of it? And any of you adults know the marshmallow test? Yeah, okay. So the marshmallow test, I'm going to ruin it for all you kids, but that's okay. It's not a fun test. You don't want to take it. <clears throat> marshmallow test is you put a kid at a table. You give him a marshmallow. And you say, here's a marshmallow. You can eat it, but if you wait 10 minutes... And don't eat it. And then at the end of 10 minutes, I'll give you another marshmallow and you can have them both. It's a rough test, right? How many of you want to take that test now? <laughs> I, I mean... <laughs> At least I get one marshmallow. You know, I don't know what my willpower is, right? But now, now, I want you, now I want you to imagine different people who could be administering the test. Different people could be administering the test. There's your mom. And she says, I'll give you another marshmallow at the end. And you're pretty confident. I mean, your mom doesn't lie to you. She loves you. But what if it's, uh, what if it's your older brother who has a way of going back on his word? Changes things, doesn't it? The question of whether you believe the promise there will be a second marshmallow is pretty central. Whether the person administering the, the test is trustworthy or not is pretty central. What if the person said, if you wait 10 minutes, <clears throat> I'll give you Two marshmallows, you can have them both. And seven minutes in, you hear the phone ring, they answer the phone. What? Are you kidding me? They run out the door and hop in their car. What are you going to do? Personally? I'm going to eat the marshmallow then, right? Like, they're clearly not going to be back in three minutes, and there's no point in waiting for the Second marshmallow, there's not going to be a second marshmallow. Okay. Do you believe God? Do you believe God? There are many ways that we convince ourselves that God is wrong.
And Solomon had convinced himself that it wouldn't be so bad. That his idolatry would not be disastrous. He'd convinced himself one way or another. It's clear, right? Because he gives himself over to it. But what had God said? You go back and you read from earlier. You read from Moses talking about them being fat and content in the land and forgetting God and what the consequences would be and you realize Solomon just doesn't believe it. He just doesn't believe that God is telling the truth. Now when, we, when I say we don't believe God, I mean that we, we don't positively believe his his good promises. And on the other hand, we, we don't positively believe his warnings. That his discipline will come. That it will be, that it will be painful. Here we have the consequence is just beginning, and they're a thorn to Solomon. Do you believe, God, that there will be consequences for your sins? Or do you think, you know, I can just go far enough that I can get what I want out of my sin? but not far enough to cause God to actually act. How many of you kids have tried that with your parents? Not getting hands this time, huh? Oh, you've all tried it. Believe me. I've seen practically every one of you try it. And you think you know your parents. You think you know them pretty well. I can, always get a lo- I can always get away with going this far over the line. I can always get away with waiting 37 and a half seconds to obey. 38, all bets are off. But at 37 and a half, if I turn right then and come, when they say come, Ah, 37 and a half seconds later. That will be okay. Right? Isn't isn't that what we do? We think, I know I'm not supposed to argue, but I really want to do this instead. And generally, I can argue for five minutes without being disciplined, and it'll be okay, and I have a maybe 3% chance of convincing. Worth the bet. Worth the trade-off, right? 
do we believe God? When he says that there will be consequences for our sins, and then there are painful things in our life, how in the world can we forget that he has said that and not repent? How, how can we forget his warnings? How can we continue not believing him instead of repenting? Now, Solomon, we don't see any evidence of his repentance here. We just see this, here's these two enemies. If God has sent something hard, some thorn in your flesh, is it to teach you to trust him? Yes, it is. You see, that's just, it is. Have you sinned? Yes, you have sinned. Is that a consequence of your sin? Maybe, maybe not. But you must learn to trust God, and you must turn to Him. And when you see sin in your life, you must repent. And if you don't, he hasn't said he'll give you a second marshmallow. He has said that he will continue to discipline his people whom he loves. Do you believe him? And do you believe him when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or do you think it's going to be, it's going to be too hard, it's going to be too miserable to follow God? He won't actually give me rest. Now this is where I want to connect it back to the marshmallow test, because you see, the marshmallow test is all about the the question of whether you can look to the future, right? That was the whole idea behind the test. Can you, can you live now according to future realities? Can you live right now according to future realities? Can you not eat the marshmallow now, not do the pleasing thing now, so that you get greater benefit later. When we can't do that, and you take later into account the way that God talks about later, where we're dealing with all of eternity, then what it looks like is us living for ourselves and the pleasures of the flesh and this life because we cannot live according to a future reality. Part of the reason that the marshmallow test is so uh, noteworthy 
is because we all understand the necessity of delayed gratification, right? We, we see it in this life. But has anybody, has anybody ever thought about the marshmallow test in a way that applies it to spiritual realities? Who is capable of passing the spiritual marshmallow test? Nobody is unless God has given them his Holy Spirit. Nobody is. I don't know how many of us would pass the actual marshmallow test. I think it'd be kind of funny. I think you'd learn a lot about people. Just by doing it with adults too, you know. But I know that none of you can pass the spiritual marshmallow test unless God is with you. Until you believe God, until you believe his promises, until you've put your hope in him, you only have this life for good things. And so you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. It's very easy for us to think that we have arrived. Look, I have a marshmallow. I've arrived. I've got the thing I want, right? I've got the thing I want. Why wait for more? Why fight for more? Why delay any gratification? I've got the thing I want. What is the thing you want? Moses warned the people, when you've got the thing you want, you'll forget God. I would say, if I were to change that around a little bit, that was, those were my, that was my summary of Moses, right? But we could, we could turn it around even a little bit further and say, when the thing you want isn't God, you won't get God. No one can serve two masters. Can't have God and money as your masters, right? Can't serve both of them. So it is with land, peace, plenty, all the things that Solomon had, that it looks like he's arrived. He's arrived. The kingdom has arrived here on earth. God's kingdom is established. Are the people done with the necessity of trusting in God? With the necessity of seeking God? No. Right then, 
that's when they need to remember. All of these are good things. They are gifts from God. But we have to seek God. And if we don't seek God, he'll give us discipline so that we seek him. The fight against sin is never over. No sooner do you defeat one sin and have a time of victory then another will raise its head. There's no time where we don't have to be fighting against sin. How many of you have ever had a spiritual high where you just were so delighted spiritually in the Lord and then fell into sin after that. We can't stop fighting against sin, can we? We haven't arrived. Solomon hadn't arrived. The moment that we can't pass the spiritual marshmallow test because we're looking to the things of this world with no trust that God's word is true concerning the future is the time we need to turn back to him. And if you haven't sinned and you're Job, And all the painful things are so that God can glorify himself in your life. And that's what Job was all about. God demonstrating his power over sin and Satan by saying, look at Job. No, go ahead. Test him. See how he comes through. And every time that Job didn't curse God, God is glorified. So you're Job. The only way that your life glorifies God in suffering that doesn't come from sin is if you turn to God. At that time too. Turn to God. Repent of your sin. Turn to God. Keep fighting your sin. Turn to God. Let him be glorified. Through your suffering. Through your suffering for righteousness. Turn to God and remember when he says that he'll discipline, 
for our sins. He always keeps his promises. And when he says that he'll provide for us and care for us and protect us and that he loves us and that he has a plan for a hope and a future, there's a better marshmallow coming. He always keeps his word. Live according to his word. Live according to his promises. Believe God. The moment that you don't believe God, your life will be mayhem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see the way that Solomon didn't quite believe that he needed to fear you. Didn't quite believe that your promises of a better future were true. Didn't quite believe that you would actually discipline him. That it would actually be painful. That he actually needed to keep serving you his whole life. Father, We thank you that you raised up Hey Dad, that you raised up Reason. We thank you for the warning that these men are to us and the reminder that we must believe your word. Help us not to fall into the sin of Solomon, but to turn to you at all times examining ourselves, repenting of our sin, and trusting you that your promises are true. That when we live according to your word, you will not only glorify yourself in our lives, which is our goal, but Father, you will bless us with a hope and a future. Help us to believe you. In our hearts, not just in our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.